can find your way to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation, of course, being the last book of the Bible, it is uh, every bit um, part of the grand story that is being told throughout the entire scriptures. It's important that we interpret it that way. And uh, last week, we, uh, we discussed the vision that John had, the Apostle John. We discussed the vision that he had of the risen and glorified Jesus, found in chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. So I would just say to you, if you are with us for the first time today, maybe you missed last week, you're tuning in online today, uh, that you uh, can go back and find that message last week through our church website or through the app, and and I would encourage you to watch that, because what John shares with us is the vision that Christ gave to him uh, certainly is a magnificent one that we need to be mindful of. And uh, my plan was to study uh, the seven churches in, in the midst of three weeks, and I was hoping to do two, two of those today, Ephesus and Smyrna, uh, but we're only going to focus on Ephesus today as I began to immerse myself in this first letter uh, to the church in Ephesus. I just couldn't combine it with another, and uh, because although I believe all of these letters are a message to us, I think perhaps this one uh, to Ephesus most pertains to us as a local church right now. And I'll explain as we go along. I want to uh, also spend a little time talking about the pattern that we see of each letter uh, here at the beginning. Um, and so as we do this, um, I want you to note the, uh, the sequence of things here in chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's really important to keep this in mind. What happened in chapter 1 as we studied last week, that vision of Christ, the risen, glorified Christ... And we listen to this letter today as it is wrapped in the beauty of his glory and the beauty of his grace-filled compassion. Um, It's only after we uh, examine that, that vision of the glorified Christ, the one who is risen, who now is enthroned above all, that we are ready to receive these messages to the churches. His call to fear not, right? That when Christ was with John, he, he laid his right hand on his shoulder and said, John, fear not. Right When John had, had prostrated himself as, if, as though dead, the scripture says, before him. And, and Jesus comforts him by saying, fear not. And the rest of Revelation hinges upon keeping this scene in mind. If we lose sight of it, what is revealed from this point forward can toss our minds and our emotions and our theology in all kinds of directions. If we lose sight of it, our response will be fear, not fear not, right? So Jesus reigns, friend, and he is for you, not against you. He is our living Savior, the one who is alive forevermore, and he holds the keys of death and Hades. He loves you and has provided everything you need to love him in return. He has provided everything you need to be victorious in this world, even in the face of suffering and persecution. And so these seven churches represent the church as a whole. Their message is our message. Their warning is our warning. And so let's examine five elements that's common, that are common throughout these seven letters that we find in Revelation chapters 1, or excuse me, 2 and 3. The first thing we'll note is each letter is written, says, to the angel, to the angel. 
And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but there has been some conversation. What's the angel? We know throughout Scripture that Greek word, angelos, can be translated as either angel or messenger. And so some have concluded that this means that every church has a guardian angel, if you will, uh, an angel that is in charge of that church. And so John was writing, and this letter would go to those angels. Uh, in my mind, it seems unlikely that an angel, which is revealing this message to John, right, that an angel would give a message to John only to be given to another angel to then be given to the church. Um, angels are certainly uh, uh, active among us. They give messages, right? We just came through Christmas. What was uh, present in that story, right, that, that there was, Mary had an angelic visit, Joseph had an angelic visit. We know angels are active in our midst. Uh, absolutely, it's possible that you have interacted with an angel. That's why Hebrews chapter 13 warns us, right, to be careful to continue in brotherly love and do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Uh, and so uh, you perhaps have had that interaction. So uh, some would say each church has a guardian angel. I'm not so sure that that's the intent here. But perhaps they're messengers. Each of these churches represented would have sent people or representatives, if you will, to the island of Patmos where John was exiled, as we discussed last week. And so they were kind of the church representatives. So maybe uh, the commission is from Jesus is for John to write this, to give to those representatives, to then take back to the churches. Perhaps that's the case, or some believe it is more specifically referring to the leaders of the churches, pastors, elders, those who would receive the letter and then share it with the rest of the church family. They would be the ones to be blessed for reading aloud the words of this prophecy, as we uh, noted in chapter 1, and we know not everybody had their copy of the scriptures like you have today and so on, so the reading aloud, the public reading of scripture was the way in which it was communicated. And so uh, I tend to believe it refers to the leaders of the churches, but uh, that is of minor importance in the fact that what truly needs to be noted is the content of the message, what was relayed, and we'll study that in a moment. So the second uh, common element of the letters, right? So we have to the angels, and then we see that this message is from Jesus, the one who is gloriously revealed to John in chapter 1. Uh, the words, it says, each letter will say this, the words, uh, there's communication here. What is words? It's, it's a communication. There's something, there's a message from Jesus to be heard. And here uh, to Ephesus, it says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We noted last week uh, at the uh, outset that, that the seven stars are representing those seven angels of each church. We noted the seven golden lampstands being the churches themselves. And uh, so the opening descriptions of each letter ties back to this vision that John had in chapter 1. And so here we are reminded it is Jesus, the one who holds uh, the seven stars in his right hand. It is Jesus, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands or the seven churches. Um, and so perhaps you have, um, uh, you, you've seen the commercials, the He Gets Us commercials. Everybody seen those, right? Uh, and and, and I, I appreciate what they are seeking to do in those commercials um, and uh, appreciate it. Uh, one thing I wish they would do, and I found myself thinking this every time I see one of those commercials, um, and I think I even said it audibly to the TV one time, like, I'd like yes, but do, but do we get him? Right? 
that's, that's really the, I mean, he gets, of course he gets us. He's the one that created us, Psalm 139, right? He's the one who fearfully, uh, you know, wonderfully made us in our mother's womb. Of course he, he gets us, right? That's a, we need to hear that message, absolutely. But, but the real crux of the question is, do we get him? And I think why we see what we see in the, in the scriptures here revealed is in chapter 1, like John gives to us this magnificent picture of our risen and glorified Savior, right? The, 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 the one that is uh, in whom all judgment is held, and yet he is compassionate to reach out and touch John and say, fear not. And so the question really is for you and me is, do we get him? And what we see in each of these letters is, is uh, uh, kind of a drawing back into that vision. Each of them will open with some reminder of what John saw in chapter 1. And so it's recalling our mind, like this is Jesus. This is the one who holds the seven stars. This is the one who walks among the golden lampstands, right? He is the head of the church. He is the one to whom we serve. And so it's a message from Jesus, the one gloriously revealed to John in chapter 1. And then a third element is each of them say, Jesus makes this comment, I know, I know, right? Two powerful words and a reminder that we are dealing with the one who knows all things, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. It is his word that examines every crack and every crevice of your mind and your soul. This is pointedly described in Hebrews Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, your heart, right? And, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I think that's at least some recall of Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned. Remember what they first tried to do? They tried to hide from God. They couldn't hide from God. We can't hide from God. His word reveals to us everything about us. And so imagine, friend, Jesus and all of his glory and all of his grace, placing his right hand on your shoulder and looking in your eyes and saying, I know. I know everything about you. I know everything you think, everything you say, everything you do. I know every good and evil desire of your heart. I know every fear and every worry. I know every pain and every sorrow. And in response, he says, fear not. Right? Don't run from me. Don't try and hide yourself from me because you can't. Come to me and find peace and rest in me. Jesus says, I know. We'll see that throughout the seven churches. The fourth common element we see is that in most of them anyway, there is a call to repent. In verse 5 that we read earlier of chapter 2, the call to repentance is mentioned twice. Friend, what do we do when we are confronted with truth? What do we do when the word of God, which is useful for teaching and reproof and for correcting and training in righteousness, as 2 Timothy tells us? What do we do when it reveals to us sin to put off and righteousness to put on? We repent. Everybody say repent. repent. 
Repent. We repent. Now, I think the word repent has a negative connotation for us, and we think of it in terms of, like, shame or embarrassment somehow. I don't know. It's, it seems like as I talk with people that the word repent, uh, you know, and it's biblical concept, people tend to think of it as this, this shameful thing. No. Uh, what the word repent means is to change our way of thinking and to then change behavior in alignment with that thinking. There is no shame involved in it. It's just calling sin what it is, right? And so when we are confronted with what Jesus reveals to these churches and we see the call to repent it's just like man just call it what it is see it as Christ sees it and and acknowledge it and change your thinking about it and go man we've got to do something differently and turn from it and change in response to it that's the word repent there's no shame involved in it right there's no embarrassment involved in it it's it's acknowledging sin for what it is and saying all right let's follow Christ So often we try to ignore that conviction of the Holy Spirit who calls us to repent and we get defensive. We seek to excuse our sin or validate it by blaming something or someone else. But yet Jesus calls us to repent and repentance requires humility. Repentance requires humility. So we'll see that throughout the letters. And then the fifth common element is there is consequence or reward. The consequence is those uh, for those who refuse to repent. The reward is for those who conquer or who overcome, as some of your translations may say, others victorious, those who win. And so this is the pattern. We'll see it as we look at all seven of the churches, one today, and Lord willing, three next week and three the following week. And uh, so let's unpack what Jesus knows about Ephesus. Uh, the church in Ephesus. Now, some important background information, and uh, many of you were with us back in the fall. Some of you weren't, right? So, uh, but I just want to recall our attention when we did our study of First Timothy back in the fall. First uh, Timothy, uh, where we started that, was going back to Acts chapter 19. And if there's a passage, I would encourage you uh, to read as some background information about Ephesus. Read Acts chapter 19. Here we realize that Paul had two incredible years of ministry there in Ephesus. Uh, and, it, and it concludes all of Asia, right? These seven churches that we're talking about in that Asia Minor region or Little Asia area, all of the Asia heard the word of the Lord. So through Ephesus, the kind of the epicenter of it, it spread to these churches. And, and later in the life of the church, we find one of Paul's young apprentice pastors there in Ephesus. And 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. And the message is that the church in Ephesus was starting to look like, uh, like some of our roads did, right, recently with the ice storm, right? Uh, people swerving and wandering off the road into ditches. Um, because of various influences from the culture and false teachers teaching a different doctrine than what they had received from Paul, there were those who began to swerve from their faith, wandering into destructive beliefs. And Paul was charging Timothy to set things straight, to teach sound doctrine, and to rid the church of those who will not repent. And we know 1 Timothy was written about 30 years prior to Revelation. 1 Timothy written in somewhere in 80, 62 to 64, and then Revelation written somewhere in the mid-90s, 94, 95 A.D. And so 30 years of time between the letter of 1 Timothy 
to the time of John writing this revelation. So with that bit of backdrop, we read the, condom, uh, the commendation of Jesus in verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, uh, apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In other words, they're battling well, right? And praise God for that. Timothy was successful, we would say. John as well. The Apostle John, we know, also ministered in the city of Ephesus. And so John and Timothy, they they battled well. They led well. Their doctrine in Ephesus, their orthodoxy, if you will, their statement of faith, their teaching, it was legit. It was strong. It was solid. They were holding the line in honor of the true gospel to Jesus Christ. And praise God for that. And so they they did what, what, what Paul communicated communicated to Timothy as his charge to him of, of setting things straight, man, it seems like they did it. The church was strong in their doctrine. And I, as I lay this before the Lord, and I think um, prayerfully in consideration, this is what we need to do with Revelation is to take these letters to the churches and kind of go, okay, what about us? <laughs> uh, what would Jesus say? And thankfully, I would, I, I, my assessment is we're, we're, we're strong in our doctrine. We are holding to truth. We're holding to the word of God in the midst of a culture that is waning in that and, and certainly pushing against that. We're holding to the word of God, our statement of faith, and we've developed other statements, you know, that help clarify what is our biblical, uh, you know, position on certain things happening in our culture, M- marriage and human sexuality and so forth, right? I, like I would say, yes, Lord, thank you. Just like Ephesus, I think we're holding the line. We're battling well in that regard. But now let's look at the sobering assessment of Jesus. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The word abandoned there, the Greek word aphiomi, uh, means to fully release or to send off. Uh, it's interesting that this word is often translated as as forgive in the scriptures, meaning to fully release someone from holding their sin against them, right? Something they've done against you, you forgive. It means you're fully releasing them of any sense of obligation towards you as a result of that. That's what this word means. They've, they've abandoned their love that they had at first. They've sent it off. They have fully released this love. Now, somewhere along the way from the apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 19, as we mentioned, and then, you know, his commendation and charge to Timothy there in the mid-60s, right? Somewhere between the 50s and 60s A.D. and, and the mid-90s, some uh, 40, 30, 40 years later, the church in Ephesus had become so focused, perhaps, on guarding truth and guarding doctrine that they lost sight that this doctrine was wrapped in love. Was this love for one another? Was this love for Christ? Was this love for the lost? All of the above, I think. In Acts chapter 19, their love for Christ and others turned the city upside down. That was their first love. So, question for us. Do you recall the fervor you had when you first received Christ? 
You recall the excitement of your heart? Rich recounted for us, praise God, one of our teenagers, right, at, at winter camp, confessing Christ and, and the, the excitement of that. And I'm sure that, that young man wants to learn more, and he's excited about sharing that with those around. Do you remember that in your life? Did you have that season of your life as a follower of Christ when you first acknowledged your sin and you embraced that forgiveness of God and there was an excitement and enthusiasm in your heart? Do you recall that? That's a little bit of what, what, what Paul is drawing, or what John is, is referring to here. Man, remember Acts 19? Remember when you first received and you were so excited that you turned an entire city upside down? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, we realize what Paul said to Timothy, that the aim of our charge, right? So when he's, when he's, when he's, he's saying to Timothy, you need to set things straight here. The aim of our charge wasn't sound doctrine so much as it was pursuing sound doctrine in love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The sound doctrine was to be wrapped and immersed in love, right? And the Ephesians lost sight of the true aim, truth immersed in love. In Ephesians, which was written before 1 Timothy, right? So that letter written to the church. Now, Ephesus is a key city throughout the New Testament, if you, if you look at it all. And, and, and that letter of Ephesians that we refer to it as in chapter 4, verse, teen, uh, verse 15, that we are to called to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, right? So speaking the truth in love. This truth has always been meant to be immersed in love, love for Christ, love for one another, love for, for those who need Christ. We can't lose sight of our love for Christ, which flows over into love for one another. Why? Because of what Jesus said in John chapter 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you can quote a hundred Bible verses, they will know that you're my disciples. If you have a strong statement of faith, they will know you're my disciples. If you can defend every whim of doctrine, right, they will know, no. They will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's not to diminish the significance and importance of truth based on the word of God, but it is also to, to tell us, like, this truth is to be immersed in love. And that love is to be the testimony to those around us. We forget that the ones we are, listen, we forget that we, the ones we are seeking to protect our doctrine from are also the ones who need to be loved in such a gracious way that they themselves will desire the very gospel that we preach. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, you can say amen to that if you agree. I would like a little interaction from you, all right? You can get excited. It's okay. Like, do we forget that? Like, maybe we get so set on, on defending our doctrine that we forget the ones we are defending that from are the very ones who need us to love them well so that they desire the gospel that we preach. If we just preach the gospel and don't love our neighbor who needs Christ, then their name will never be added to the Lamb's book of life, as we see in Revelation chapter 20. 
What good is it if we can defend our doctrine from every lie that the world may throw our way if we do not immerse the truth in love and the love of Christ and love for one another? For those of you that know your Bible as well, and if you're just getting you know, new to the Scriptures, you're just trying to understand the Word, there's a wonderful chapter. And again, maybe there's two places I would encourage you to read today, Acts 19 and, and 1 Corinthians 13, which speaks of the, we call it the love chapter, right? Do you remember how it starts? For those of you that know it, if I, if I speak in the tongues of men and even of angels, if I have prophetic powers and understand everything, is that possible? If I have all faith and if I give away all that I have, even give my body to be burned, but have not love. What does Paul say? If I have all of that and I give all of myself, but I don't have love, I gain nothing and I am nothing. How's that chapter conclude? Faith, hope, and love remain. What is the greatest? Love. See, everywhere in Scripture we see that this truth that we are to hold to and to cling to and to understand and do well to study, right? Be a, be a good student of the Word of God. We are to understand and hold to that truth immersed in an attitude in a heart of love. And the Ephesians had lost it. They had lost it. There was something missing. May we never forget the source of it all, right? 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Friend, never stop preaching the gospel to yourself. Why? So that you are constantly reminded of God's love for you and that you will be compelled to love others in the same manner. Never stop preaching the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of it every day. That you stood in desperate need of the love of Christ. And if you've received that love and you've been forgiven and you're saved and redeemed and all that great and wonderful stuff that's true of us in Christ, hallelujah, right? But don't ever forget the depth of your need for the love of Christ. Because that is what compels us to love others. It's what compels us to, to look upon them with compassion instead of anger, right? To love them well when we first remember our need. For the love of Christ. Over the last few years, I've said it more and more to people in helping them through difficult situations. Let's let the gospel be our guide. Especially when we're talking about relationships. Right? Let's let the gospel be our May I first remember what Christ has done for me. And that is what enables me to love you as Christ has loved me. So if you find yourself in this place your doctrine all squared away, but complacent in your love, perhaps tired of the mess and brokenness of loving others and their sinfulness, then this warning is for you. It's for us. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, if not, I will come to you. Remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll talk about that when we get to verse 19. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers or overcomes or is victorious. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, as we read of in Revelation 22. 
We also read of it in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The tree of life is there alongside the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So remember, repent, and return. That's what we see Christ call us to. If we find our love waning, remember and repent. Return from what you acknowledge as God, I've, I've lost a bit of that. My heart, boy, it's not that I've abandoned what I believe to be true, but God, I'm struggling in how I love people. I'm struggling in, in, in continuing to engage in the mess. And we know the, the more we live in life, the older we get, right, the more life experience we have, the more disappointments, the more rejections, the more expect, unmet expectations and blah, 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 right, the more that our heart can become jaded, the more we can become cynical, the longer like, we go in life, the more that that temptation is there. And friend, if you're there, what's your call? To repent and to return and to do. Right, to return to that love, your love for Christ. He never gave up on you, did he? While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you, friend. Is there anything so significant that someone else can do to you that would be greater than that, right, that would cause us to say, well, just can't love them anymore? No. Now, there's... There's hard things, right? There's, there's times we have to consider if, if we need to end a friendship and all of those kind of things. I get all of that, but remember, re- repent, return to a heart of love. Do you know why churches close their doors, right? Jesus says, if you don't, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Do you know why churches do what we call close their doors? Why they cease to exist? Two primary reasons. One, they lose their way. Not just leadership, but the people also. They abandon truth. Some may not close their doors technically, but their lampstand is removed. There is no more power of Christ. They become a social club with a church name or an active religious mausoleum. No gospel preached, no lives transformed. For example, many of the churches that once thrived during the great Reformation period of the 1500s in Europe, they lost their way due to liberal theology and now are very small in number or have shut down completely. So we have great cathedrals in Europe that are empty. They lose their way. Second reason churches close their doors is they lose their love. Truth may still be preached right from the pulpit and defended in the pew. They may still be able to quote Bible verses and recite a creed and defend their statement of faith, but they forget about their deep need for the love and grace of Jesus and then their love for one another and their love for those who who are lost fades. And in this void, they turn inward. They begin to argue about petty, senseless matters. They critique the latest fashions and trends of culture rather than loving those in the culture. They become critical of one another, power hungry, full of bitterness. In other words, both elements of this letter in Ephesus go missing, truth and love. And if the lampstand symbolizes the church, as we noted, then the removal from its place means the power of the Holy Spirit is removed. The source of light is no longer present. 
Friend, every church has a story. Not just when and how it began. Every church has a history. Every church has a testimony. I've spoken with some of you recently who have, uh, one, moved into the area and you've been what we call church shopping, right? You've tried out churches, you've examined, you've tested. Uh, some of you, there's been other reasons that have caused a need for change in a church that you belong to and participate in. And it takes time to get to know the heart of a church, doesn't it? And we realize in all of its fullness, only Jesus knows. But we see it. We see it. And so as I approach these seven letters, I believe it's very fitting for us to ask the question, what would Jesus say about us? What would Jesus say about Crossroads? And I... Again, we'll reiterate, I believe each of these letters to the churches is in a sense a a message to us, to the church throughout history, therefore to us. And so we need to pay attention both to the commendations and to the warnings because every bit of these things can be true of us as well. What would Jesus say about us? From time to time, I hear what others say. When it's critical, I ask the Lord to humble me and help me hear any truth we need to pay attention to. When it's positive, I ask the Lord to humble me. And remember, it's all because of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So it's good to hear what others say, but most importantly, what would Jesus say? You know, we celebrated 30 years of ministry last year. And I've been saying to you for a few years now that we are entering a danger zone, as church history would tell us, a danger zone of complacency and plateauing, a danger zone of pride, thinking that we have ministry figured out, great programs, a building to call home, and that we can make our own effective worship gatherings and so on. And as I've been doing some pondering in my mind and heart, it's been prayerful consideration of, Lord, what would you say about us? Give us eyes to see, right? One of the things that we did today as we read the scripture is that we stood as we read. I kept you standing as we read the word of God. At times we do that. At times we don't. Our heart here is to not do things just because that is the way we do it. I pray that you see the desire behind that is that we never become complacent, that we never just kind of fall into this rote system of things and we just do what we do because that's the way we do it. I think that's, when we have that mind and heart, that's one of the ways, at least, that we can possibly um, become disconnected from the heart of love in the midst of what may be good things. One of the questions that I grapple with, and I'll share a bit more what's on my mind over the next couple of weeks because we don't have much time left, but is the question, are we too casual in our worship? Are we too casual? 
it's interesting, there's been, I don't know if you've heard this, probably not, kind of pastor circles, I guess, but there's been a conversation going around social media and the internet the last few weeks about coffee. Coffee in the sanctuary. Does that cause us to have two lacks of an attitude as we approach the throne of grace? It's a good conversation. There's other things we can include in that. But I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that because the question is really about your heart. Right? Honestly, I could care less whether or not you have a cup of coffee in your hand, whether you wear a T-shirt and shorts or whether you wear a suit, whether you wear a dress, whether you wear a hat or blue jeans, whether we have a contemporary form of worship or modern or liturgical or traditional, whatever words you want to, it doesn't matter to me what form of worship, if you will, that we have. You can worship in any form and have a heart that loves Jesus. And you can worship in any form and just be going through the motions. It doesn't matter. The question is your heart, our heart. And so our, the question we have as a people, right, when we come, when we gather, when we circle up over the word of God at a coffee house, right, or when we have community groups or when we, uh, you know, spend time out in our community with our love reach projects or when we, when we do things of our nature, we, when we're in a Bible study together, like the question is, friend, not, not necessarily what the form of all of that is or what specifically we're doing. The question is, where's your heart? Is this, are these things we engage in with a heart of love for Christ, acknowledging the gospel and, and the, the desperate need we have for a Savior? And does that compel us to love each other well, to, to reach out, to, 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 to care for each other, one another, right? I mean, the scripture are filled with, with one another's and how we love each other and carry one another's burdens and, and all of that, right? Does, does your need for Christ and the love he has for you that you have received, does that compel you to love others? Does it compel you to, 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 to walk across your backyard to your neighbor that lives behind you that doesn't know Jesus? Yeah, he may be grouchy and grumpy and all of that, but... But friend, he needs Jesus. What about the person that sits next to you at work or that you interact with in meetings? Your humble gratitude for the gospel, I, I think that's what God cares about. And if you are seeking to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, as we are called to, your reverence will be there. Your approach to the throne of grace will be what it needs to be because your heart will be full of gratitude and humility. Let's be a people who stand on truth and never compromise truth. But friend, let's be a people who continue to love well. Right? Father, as we think about these things, as we ponder the truth to the church in Ephesus, I pray that we would do well to humbly examine our own context 
our own hearts and see what you have for us. May we be a people who hold tightly to truth, cling to it, your word. May we see what you have for us. And may that truth transform us in such a way that we love you and love others well. May we persevere. May we have patient endurance in that effort. In Jesus' name.